Good morning, everyone. So my name's Diff, uh, I know that's a bit of a strange name for those of you that don't know me, but that's easy to remember at least, so you can just remember my name's Diff. I'm the uh, youngest of the three guys that started uh, the church out here, and uh, Pete is uh, Pete Sonnegeld is in at TCC at the church that planted us today, so it gives me an opportunity to preach, which is pretty exciting. Um, I actually run the, uh, the community group for the high school students that, uh, that come to the project, and most of them go to the school here as well. And uh, so what that means is a lot of my focus is on younger people and uh, a lot of the research that I do or the reading that I do is about young people and I feel as I'm fairly young myself. So a lot of that is quite relevant to me. Um, I started what I'm about to talk about today thinking about younger people but it actually uh, turned into this thing that became very relevant to everybody. So my prayer is that it's really relevant to you. It challenged me a lot and continually challenges me a lot. Um, so we'll get into it. I'm going to, uh, later on this year, I'm actually going to be preaching a series called Christ Crosses Culture, which is about the way that Christianity and culture intersect. Uh, but this is a little bit of an introduction. The, the, uh, the rest of the series won't come until later on in the year. But this will serve as a bit of an introduction, and, uh, and we'll keep going from there. You might remember a few months ago, for those of you that were here, um, Pete preached through Ephesians 4. And one of the bits of Ephesians 4, he, uh, he focused on this idea of callousness. Um, if you don't remember, I'll just read that out for you. It says there, They are darkened in their understanding, <clears throat> alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Before I go any further, I just want to take a little tangent, because what I've just done there, it's very important that we don't just do that all of the time. And what I mean is, don't just open up your Bible and read a tiny little chunk, a few passages here and there, and then string it all together and think that you understand what it was about. You wouldn't do that with a book, you wouldn't open up a book right in the middle, read a couple of pages and think you understood the book. It wouldn't make any sense anyway. You wouldn't watch 30 seconds in the middle of a film and you wouldn't go to an, a recipe and grab two ingredients and bung them together and say that you made a cake. It wouldn't be a cake. It would probably just be flour and butter. Which is pastry, so that's not bad. Pastry. <laughs> but it wouldn't be a cake and that's the important part. Now you may object and you say the Bible isn't just a book, it's not a movie and it's not a recipe, which is fair enough. Because that's true. It's more like a conversation. It's God talking to us. But we have to remember that it's still letters and poems and historical records. It still has a context. God organised it all and inspired its writing to communicate with us. But it still has a context and we can't forget that. So it's also fair to say that in a conversation you wouldn't just grab a letter or an email from someone, read a couple of words in the middle of the email and then say that you knew what the email was about and then respond. Chances are your response is going to be incorrect. So, this isn't to imply that you can't be right when you are reading a few verses just by themselves. For instance, in Proverbs 3, 11 and 12 says this, My child, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves the one that he loves as a father of the son in whom he delights. This is easy to read and understand simply. We don't need a whole bunch of context to understand that little bit because Proverbs is just a bunch of little wise sayings all strung together. However, let's look at Jeremiah 33, 6. I'm going to bring it recovery and healing. I will heal them and reveal to them abundance of prosperity and security. Reading this by itself without any context, that could mean anything. 
In fact, if we're sick or if we need some money or something, we could read that and be very tempted to think that that's for us and that's written to us and telling us God's going to get us healthy and he's going to give us money. That may be the case, but it's not necessarily fair to infer that just from reading a tiny little bit of, of Jeremiah. In fact, what it actually is, is God talking to Jeremiah about Judah and Israel uh, after being attacked by the Chaldeans. He's saying that they've been attacked and he's going to restore them. Now, the truth is that God does communicate through his Holy Spirit when, uh, when we read his word. And sometimes he will illuminate a passage like this and he will reveal it to be for us individually. However, we can't go through the Bible all the time picking random verses whenever we need a little pick-me-up and claim that that's God, God's word for us. Greg Kokel, uh, who's an apologist from America, calls this never read a Bible verse. All he means is never read just a Bible verse. You need to read the entire thing. So, the question is, who is the con- who, inside of the context, who is the they that Ephesians 4 is referring to? Paul, in Ephesians, is writing to the saints or the church as a whole in Ephesus. He refers in verse 17 to the Gentiles. So the Gentiles of the time were the people who were not Jewish, but also at this point were the people who weren't Christian. They were those who had no religion, or at least not a religion based upon the Old Testament. We could possibly infer, therefore, that Paul was referring to the secular world, describing what the world was like, the world outside of the church, and insisting that the church in Ephesus work hard to make sure that they don't live like them. Make sense? There are actually many passages all the way through the Bible, particularly the New Testament, in which God talks to us and tells us how to respond to the world that we live in. Romans 12.2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. John 15, 18 to 20 says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Lots of references to the world here. <coughs> John 17, 14 17. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. This is Jesus talking to his Father, God. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is true. And then in James 1, 26-27. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. For me, that's a brutal passage. I, that's, I think that's fantastic. Because the truth is, I don't, can't remember, other than times I've been on mission trips, the last time I visited an orphan or a widow. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. The concept of living like Gentiles that's mentioned in Ephesians 4 is continually referred to, as you can see, is just living of or like the world. The overall message behind all of these passages is to be careful to what extent we fall in love with the world or become like the world. The famous paraphrase of the John 17 passage that you may have heard is to be in but not of. To be in the world but not of the world. And this has always been the Christian struggle. To be in the world, a part of it, affecting it and loving those in it, which we're called to do. 
while not being of the world, avoiding living like the world and having the same appetites and the same lifestyle of the world. A great way to describe the Christian's plight to be in but not of is as an exile. Richard John Newhouse wrote a book called American Babylon, which suggests that Christians live in exile in a foreign land because our true citizenship is in the kingdom of God. But for the moment, we're living in a foreign land down here. We have to live in this world, but we don't want to live of the world. We're living in a world that's not right. It's bent. It's warped from the way it was originally supposed to be. As Christians, this means that we are called to live in the world, but with God's help, we try to not allow it to bend us to fit its shape, but rather we stand straight and we try to help those around us stand straight as well. But, as you would know, this is very difficult. Eugene Peterson, the guy who uh, wrote the paraphrase of the Bible, The Message, says, Every generation faces a changed culture, different social problems and challenges, new patterns of work, evolving economic and political conditions. Much of what a Christian community does in each generation is learn together how this is done in particular circumstances. So that's our challenge. Our challenge is to understand those changed circumstances and then work out how to approach them. This is the challenge of living in, but not of. And, unfortunately, to some degree, it doesn't happen by default. The sheer amount that God tells us to be wary of the world, to be wary of false doctrines, of people with itchy ears looking for teachers to suit their own passions in 2 Timothy 4, of us requiring wisdom and listening to teaching and being accepting of biblical reproof, all of this goes to demonstrate that living in, but not of, is really hard work, and you need to be on your guard. We actually need to purposefully engage with and understand our culture to ensure that we live in it but not of it. And if we don't think about it, if we don't realise that culture is changing, if we don't together work together as a group, not just inside these walls, inside this church or inside our community group, but with Christians all over the place, with the church as a whole, if we don't together learn how to approach it and how to approach our new and continually changing circumstances, then we will default, unfortunately, to one of two positions. A few weeks ago, during the Redeeming Christmas series, uh, Sonny spoke about the possible responses to cultural phenomena as these three things. Reject, redeem, or receive. He talked about, I just remember the one where he talked about Santa. He said, do we reject Santa, do we receive Santa, do we redeem the idea of Santa? If we don't pause, think, and discuss with each other and ask God for guidance and look to his word for truth, then we default, unfortunately, to one of the two outside ones, either rejecting or receiving. Why is this? I think this is because redeeming takes a lot more work. It actually takes a lot of work to redeem something. It's easier to flat-out reject or completely receive something than to redeem it. Redeeming something takes time, it takes effort, and it takes a significant degree of thoughtful application, work that we might not be willing to do. Particularly if we've fallen into the trap of living a Sunday Christianity in which we don't think about God throughout the rest of the week. It's work that we're not used to doing. Unfortunately, I think that to some degree the Western church has fallen into this trap. (coughs) I don't mean to imply that all churches everywhere have never redeemed anything. But we really, really need to engage in our culture more thoroughly to be able to discuss what elements are redeemable because a lot of it is. 
As a side note, one of the most important reasons that I think everyone needs to do this, particularly older generations, is because of the speed at which culture is changing. Later on, when, when I do the full series, we talk about the difference between the 1960s and now, and the cultural changes that have happened have been faster than any other period of 50 years in the history of the world. It's ridiculous what's going on. So for the older generation to even be able to help and teach and disciple the younger generation, they need to understand what they're going through. Because most of the time, even me, I'm only 25 as a teacher, I see stuff that 14-year-olds are going through and I just think they're ridiculous. Not the things they're going through, I think the people are ridiculous. I think the students are ridiculous. Just like, why would you do that? But the fact is, I've got no idea what they're going through because even in the 10 years since I was that age, the world has changed dramatically. What this default positioning can do, unfortunately, when we don't think about it, when we don't focus on it, and we lean either to reject or to receive, is it can create a whole bunch of conflict, significant division between the rejectors and the receivers. Obviously, they disagree. One group has decided, without giving it much thought at all, that a certain thing is completely irredeemable, and they reject it outright. The other group has decided, without giving it much thought either, that there's nothing wrong with it. A really, really obvious example of this is the generational one. Young people often disagree with their parents because they have received something that their parents have rejected. Think about it. I think that, for me, a great example of me growing up was heavy metal. I really like really heavy music. And most of my family does. My brother's over there wearing a heavy metal shirt. Right now. <laughs> but my parents really struggled with it just because it was so loud and there were so many drums. You don't need three drummers in a band, apparently. but perhaps those of you that are older can remember and think back to your own childhood when your parents rejected something that you thought was totally fine like the Beatles for instance I mean obviously the Beatles I mean they had their drug issues or whatever but you compare them to some of the stuff that's going on now and you think the Beatles are fine they're almost already redeemed that's fine, okay in fact I can still remember a very interesting uh, conversation with my granny, my mum's mum telling me how mixed up and evil the band of monkeys was. And that, all these young people, who are the monkeys? Just to help you out, this is the monkeys. She thought that they were like of Satan almost. Yeah? I mean, maybe, the more I look at it, the more I think maybe they were. But, <laughs> an intense stare. But meanwhile, my granny's telling me how evil these guys are, and I'm listening to Metallica in my headphones, and I'm thinking, you don't even want to know what I'm listening to. But you can see how these divisions are just happening generationally because young people are receiving this stuff because it's new, because that's what young people do. They like the new stuff. And old people are rejecting stuff because it's new, because that's what they don't like, the new stuff. This creates division in the church as well. Because when questioned, obviously each <coughs> position, each side is going to defend their position. And they'll actually be able to do it with some degree of success. Because there's elements of truth both in the receiving and in the rejecting side. But neither hits the mark completely every single time. See, the rejectors live out, but not of. They're living outside the world and not of the world. Kind of like the Amish. You know, the Amish, they make their own little civilization somewhere else. They're not really living like culture at all, which is great. But to what extent are they having any impact on culture? Either? This, unfortunately, means that a lot of the time rejectors aren't missional because they don't understand. 
Sometimes they're escapists, trying to escape the world because maybe they're scared, they're living in fear of the world. Often they have no impact, they can be called puritanical, uh, and a lot of the time they're reactive. They're not on the front foot, they're reacting in fear from the stuff that the world is doing. The receivers, on the other hand, live in and off. So living in the world, but they're exactly the same as the world. They're not able to be missional either because they don't seem to be any different. They've got nothing to call anyone over to. Which also means that they have no impact. And quite possibly it means that they're living with and excusing some real habitual sin in their lives. <clears throat> we are called to be in and not of. This means that we are called to love the people of the world, but not love the world. It's about mission. Really, that's what this is about. It's about mission. Jesus lived in and not of. Everything he said demonstrated keen cultural knowledge. Every little uh, story that he told, his parables, were all geared towards the culture of the time so that people understood better what he was talking about. He was able to communicate to people in a way that they understood. He hung out with sinners, bringing them into his kingdom instead of being tainted by theirs. He lived in the world but not of, which meant when people experienced him, they experienced something not of this world. And this is what we're called to do. He lived in and not of, which meant when something was bad enough to be corrupt, he did something about it. He did not stand for it. He spoke to prostitutes and with criminals, but never sinned with them. He turned water into wine, but didn't get drunk. He saw sin in the temple, and in righteous anger, he did something about it. So, what do we do? What we do is we need to apply biblical and spiritual lenses to our eyes and take another look at the culture around us. We need to examine, discuss, think and pray about the culture that we live in for two reasons. Firstly, it's for our sanctification. And secondly, it's missional. In that order. It needs to be in that order because we need to be free from cultural slavery in certain areas before we try to help others that are struggling in those areas. An alcoholic is not the best person to do pub ministry kind of makes sense. He needs to be sanctified first. He needs to realise that he has received a worldly system of thought, alcohol dependence. And then he needs to redeem alcohol. Redemption for him, by the way, might be that he never drinks another bit of alcohol again in his life. Once it's redeemed, which may be complete rejection, he can help others and be missional in those areas. In fact, he might be one of the best people to do so, but he needs to be free from it first. What this means is before we take a step to understand our culture for ourselves, for mission's sake, we must be willing to analyse ourselves and look for areas in which we have got it wrong. And this is one of the things that happened to me when I was writing this message throughout the week. I wrote that bit and then I was obviously forced to do that for myself. The question is, have you received something that you should have rejected? Or have you rejected something good which is redeemable? The truth is we've all probably done it to both of them, to all sorts of different things in our lives. But God would have us continue to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. His will is our sanctification, it says in 1 Thessalonians 4. So first, let's focus on the receivers. These are people that have received stuff that they probably should have rejected or redeemed. Probably everyone in here, myself included, has got some areas like this. Perhaps you're already thinking about it. Ephesians 4 tells us that we develop a hardness and calluses on our heart. A really good example of how calluses work can be seen in guitar players. 
I used to play guitar a little, I kind of still do, but I'm not really up to the simpo standard. Um, when I did first pick up the guitar, I picked up a nylon string guitar, and everything was fine for a while, I'm playing all around and everything's great. But the first time I picked up a steel string and tried to play, it hurt. I don't know if anyone's ever played a steel string guitar before, for those of you that have. It really hurt me. I just work in offices, I type, that's the hardest thing I touch all day, a keyboard. So all of a sudden, a tiny little thin string that's digging into my fingers, that is really hurting a lot. However, my desire to play overwhelmed the pain in my fingertips and I persevered through the pain. Eventually, over time, the pain became less and then it became non-existent. Now, as the pain was decreasing, I wasn't magically becoming more tolerant to pain. It wasn't like the pain itself was decreasing. What actually happened was the skin on the end of my fingers grew thick and tough. Do you have calluses on your fingers, Simba? There you go. <coughs> they grew callus. You can see this in builders as well, people that use their hands a lot. The way that a callus grows on a guitar player's fingers actually give us a bit of insight into the way that callus grows on our heart. First, it takes time. Like a shampoo ad says, it won't happen overnight, but it will happen. I don't even know if that ad's still on anymore. This, demonstrate, this is demonstrated well, actually, this gradual process, by the desensitisation that can happen to us over a long period of time if we expose ourselves to violence or to gory movies. When I was younger, I had the opportunity to watch some pretty intense and violent films, and unfortunately, I did. At first, I really struggled with some of them. I really struggled with this one particular one. It was the most intense thing I'd ever seen, and it was almost too much for me to handle. But soon enough, after watching a couple of times, I became kind of used to it. However, the series of movies that I was watching, this particular violent series of movies that I was watching, there are seven in total, became more and more violent and more and more messed up each time a new one came out. All the young people like, I know what that is. <laughs> it was like the producers knew that I needed something more intense every single time, and I guarantee that they did. That's the way they sell their stuff. If you ever watch a series of movies, it's always they've always got a better the next one. And the reason they got a better the next one is because if it's the same, we say that it's not as good. Even though that's weird, that doesn't make sense. If it's the same, we say it's not as good because we've become desensitised to it. This is also the sort of thing that's mirrored a lot in a lot of drug users' stories. You know, The first hit of weed is really good, it's a great buzz, but eventually you need to start working your way up because you become desensitised to the feeling and you need more and more and more. Secondly, at the beginning, it hurts. The steel strings when I was playing, really hurt my fingers at the start because technically it was bad for them. You know, for a brickie, holding bricks all day and cutting your hands up all day, it's actually bad for it. You're not supposed to get cut up all of the time. Pain happens for a reason. It happens to tell us that we're causing damage to ourselves. That same pain that hurts on the strings is the pain that lets me know I've accidentally put my hand on a hot plate. So it's a good thing. But when we develop a hardened and calloused heart, chances are when that callous started, right down at its cause, its root cause, it was a painful experience that started it. Thirdly, eventually the pain stops. But so does all feeling. All of the feeling stops together. Once my fingers had developed the calluses, they not, no longer hurt while I was playing the guitar. However, I couldn't really feel anything with them anymore. And this also happens with our hearts. We go from pain to no pain, but a lot of the time that actually comes at the cost of no feeling at all. This can also mean not being able to feel good emotions. 
not being able to connect well with our family or friends, or not being able to share openly with our spouse or God. The awesome and incredible thing to realise is that God is a God of resensitization. We've become desensitized by the world. God wants to resensitize us. He wants us to be like children, innocent and unpolluted. Of course, this may be painful because cutting away the calluses on the end of your fingers can hurt. Like the pruning of a rose bush, though, cutting away the dead and unproductive parts is necessary so that that rose bush can become the beautiful and complete thing that it was designed to be. So, for our own self analysis, we need to be honest and assess to what extent and in what areas. We have received culture. In what ways are you like the world when you shouldn't be? And importantly, has that made you calloused? The real trick is that if we are calloused, unfortunately, if we do have hard hearts in some areas, then this can mean that we can sit here and hear something like this and it just bounces off because it's already hardened. We don't even get impacted by it. So what that means is that we need to pray that God will break through the hardness. Ask God to reveal hardness that's in your heart, areas that you are callous to, and then pray that he can break it away. Ask your spouse or mentor or friend to be honest with you and then receive their honesty. Speak the truth in love with one another. The second part of the puzzle is for those of us that have rejected something that really could and should be redeemed. This is a little harder, and it's a little bit more personal as well. As I mentioned in the earlier example, for an alcoholic, a complete rejection of alcohol might be the way that it's redeemed in their life. The important thing about being a rejecter, though, if you need to reject something such as alcohol, is to not judge those people that have redeemed and can live with it. But also, you need to make sure that you're capable of living with and communicating with people who have not made the same rejections as you. Some people need to not drink alcohol, and that's fine. Some people can have a beer with a meal, and it's okay, and that's fine as well. The problem is if those two people start forcing their opinions on top of each other, because for each of those two people, they'll be sinning against their conscience if they actually do the thing that the other person is telling them to do. Likewise, those people that have redeemed something such as alcohol should not judge or condemn those that have, for their conscience sake, completely rejected it. 1 Corinthians 8, 9... Actually, all of 1 Corinthians 8 is a really interesting example of this, where Paul is talking about the fact that he is not, no longer living under the old law and he can eat meat and food that's been sacrificed. However, for some people, that's still a really big deal and it's still a really big sin. And so he goes so far as to say... Don't let the freedom that you have to eat food be a stumbling block for other people. And if it is, he says, if I would ever cause my brother to stumble, I'll never eat in front of him again. What that really means is that we're not thinking individualistically. It's much better to think about the the betterment of everybody. Don't let your freedom and your ability to flaunt your freedom around the place impact other people negatively. Unfortunately, I reckon this is one of the big places that the Western church has bought into the culture and received culture, and that's individualism. We just think that we can just care about ourselves, and as long as we go to church and say hello and drink the coffee and then walk away, that it's okay whatever we do at home or how we live at home, as long as it's not affecting anyone else. That is not the case. The whole metaphor of the church being like a body says the head can't say to the foot, I don't need you. But at the same time, the head can't chop himself off and roll away and still be alive. He's going to die by himself. 
that he needs to think and look after the foot so that the foot can carry him around properly. We need to not buy into individualism. We need to start living more as a community for the good of everybody, which means for those people who can redeem something, we don't go and flaunt it in the faces of those people that need to reject it for their own good. Does that make sense? Really interesting passage in um, the Screwtape Letters by Lewis. For those of you that don't know the Screwtape Letters, Lewis is writing, uh, and the, the person who's doing all the writing, the character, is a demon who's writing to another demon. So it's satirical. So when he talks about he in this passage, he's talking about God. This is a really great example of the fact that redeeming culture is on our side. A lot of the time we can look at culture and say, this is too hard, it's too scary, it's too big. But this is, this is a great example of the fact that it actually is on our side. As he says here, it's the screw tape talking, talking about God. He, God, he's a hedonist at heart. All those fasts and vigils and stakes and crosses are only a facade, only like foam on the seashore. Out at sea, out in his sea, there is pleasure and more pleasure. He makes no secret of it. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. He has filled his world with pleasures. There are things for humans to do all day long without his minding in the least. Sleeping, washing, eating, drinking, making love, playing, praying, working. Everything has to be twisted before it's any use to us. We fight under cruel disadvantages. Nothing is naturally on our side. Man, I love that. I love that because it tells us that everything is naturally on God's side. It's only when stuff gets twisted that it starts to become bad. The truth is, most things can be redeemed. If nothing is naturally on Satan's side, then everything is naturally on God's side. This means that up to a point, everything has a chance to be redeemed. Obviously, murder is not redeemable. But murder is not life in its natural order. It's life that's been twisted. And while murder is not redeemable, a murderer still is. But this obviously becomes more difficult when we discuss issues like violence in films, genres of music, what to do with our money. This is where it becomes difficult between parents and their kids. Oh, that movie's too violent. And then the kid's like, that's not even a violent movie. I could show you some violent movies if you want. Okay? This is especially true for specific situations or items which the Bible doesn't directly address. And this is where we can fall back on the old saying, it's a heart issue. And it is a heart issue. As long as we acknowledge that when we say heart, we do not mean emotions. This is not an emotional issue. This is a heart issue. And, as long as we acknowledge that, as it says in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. And as long as we acknowledge that our hearts can become calloused. So when I say it's a heart issue, that's not get out of jail free. That's actually, you really need to work on your heart and make sure that your heart is aligned with the will of God. As long as when you say it's a heart issue, what you really mean is, I've really wrestled with God over this. I've been willing to give it up. I've fasted for periods of time. I do not struggle with an idolatry of this thing. I will listen to the opinions of godly mentors and people in my life about this, but I still feel in my heart that it's okay, that it's not damaging me or those around me, it's not preventing me from bringing glory to God, and that it's not unbiblical. In that situation, I would say, okay, follow your heart, follow your conscience. So, where do you sit? Are you a receiver and you need to become resensitized to the goodness and gentleness of God? Or are you a rejecter who needs to live more in the world in order to be able to impact it? Chances are there's elements of both in your life. Because I know there's elements of both in my life. We need to be on guard. 
the world, the culture that we live in, despises truth. Romans 1.25 says that the unrighteous of the world have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. However, we must not live in fear and we must not live in judgment. Living in the world is required. Our command is to make disciples. We need to love the people of the world, just not fall in love with the world at the same time. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you've given us your word and uh, that your word can speak life to us and life to the world as well. Thank you that we don't have to live in fear of the world. And thank you that you can give us the wisdom and the guidance and that your body, the church, can support us when we're trying to work out how to live in the world but not of the world. I pray for my heart and for the hearts of everybody here that they haven't become calloused. And in areas that perhaps they have become callous due to circumstances or sin, that you could just break through, that people can have honest conversations with each other after this. Spouses and mentors and friends can have honest conversations with each other about where callousness might have built up in their hearts, where we may have received something that we should not have received. And then I pray for godly counsel, that you can be speaking to people to help us redeem the culture so that we can impact it for your sake. Amen.